So we're going to be working through this book. It's a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the church in Rome around 54 AD. And it's found in the New Testament after your four Gospels and the book of Acts then comes uh, Romans. It's one of probably the most significant letters ever written in human history. When people read and hear the book of Romans, remarkable things begin to happen. So I encourage you to go on this journey with us. Augustine, the great African theologian, was transformed while reading Romans 13. Here's his experience and his words. It was as though the light of confidence flooded in my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. It was as though the light of confidence flooded in my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. And those writings still influence us today. And uh, Romans 1.17 changed the face of Europe forever when Martin Luther, a young German monk, he read it. And this was what he read. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he understood salvation for the first time. And he wrote that it opened the gateway to paradise for the rest of his life, he'd show others how to enter that paradise. Friends, things happen when we read the book of Romans. Lives and hearts and destinies are transformed, whether you're reading it for the first time or the hundredth. But this shouldn't surprise us in any way, since it was written by someone whose life had been radically transformed through an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. You know, Paul once well, I should say Saul. He was once a great persecutor of the church. And he begins the letter to the church in Rome by introducing himself. It might seem a strange way to start a letter. And it's on the board outside this morning. It's almost like, you know, if you have an Insta uh, or a Facebook bio where people carefully decide how they want people to best know them. You know, they want this kind of little short bio. And this is what he's, he's doing there. He's doing the same kind of thing. Paul. A servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. It's so significant, this short bio, because it tells us who he is in relation to someone else. Who he is, he belongs to Christ. Who he is, he has been called by Christ. Who he is, he now sets himself apart for Christ. His whole identity and purpose revolved around Christ Jesus. And in these three phrases, the crucial thing is not who Paul is, but whose Paul is. And this will, be, will, in the end, be what makes your life significant or not. Not who you are, but rather whose you are. So his brief bio prompts us to ask three important questions of ourselves. And we reflect on these and should reflect on these questions often. Who, friends, do you belong to? Who's called you? And who are you living for? Let's look at the first one. Who do you belong to? The first phrase is Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus. That word servant is quite a soft translation. Even if you use bond servant, it doesn't, what is that? But it's actually a more accurate translation would be a slave of Christ Jesus. Slave, friends, is a strong word. And why would Paul use such a strong word with such negative connotations to introduce himself? I'm going to illustrate that with a picture. Liverpool has a dark past, which it's hard to see if you walk around Albert Docks. It looks so beautiful. And the pierhead, wow. 
But the, there's a plaque that was only unveiled last year in our city explaining a Liverpool street name with its historical links to slavery. And it goes on, if, I, if you can't read from your distance, it's Sir William Brown, 1784 to 1864. Why has it taken so long to tell people where this name and, and, and the story behind it? He was a cotton merchant, a banker, a philanthropist, and a slave owner. Liverpool Central Library and World Museum have their origins and wealth accrued through slavery. William Brown became one of the main importers of slave-produced cotton into Liverpool. The Brown family also owned many enslaved people and on their plantations in the United States. And William Brown Street was named after him for funding these buildings. Friends, think about this for a moment. Who doesn't want to be thought of well? To leave a legacy, something that will continue in perpetuity. Way back in Genesis chapter 4, after it says Cain kills Abel. It's not my spelling, by the way. It was a, <laughs> Cain is a, a C-A-I-N spelling of Cain. But after he kills Abel, he went away from the presence of the Lord and he built a city and named it after his son. Outside of God, we try to right the wrongs through charitable works and we try and build a good reputation. We try and find our worth. Yet all the good you can do and all the good I can do can't change who we are. This is a wonderful charitable nation. One of the first things that struck me coming to this nation was the number of charity shops. And many of you volunteer in charity shops. It's an incredibly charitable nation. But often it's like, you, you know, people will put that foot forward. Oh, I'm doing my charitable thing. I'm, you know, I've done this and done that and I'm doing good things and, and I've done. And, and those are all well and good. But if it's at the expense of, of a righteousness from Christ, it's all to naught. Our righteousness can be just a filthy rag, the, the Scripture tells us, if it's not rooted in Christ. So William Brown Street wasn't the only example in Liverpool. Bold Street was named after Jonas Bold, a 19th century sugar trader, banker, mayor of Liverpool, slave merchant. Unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, Bold Street is only one of many streets in Liverpool named after influential figures in the slave trade. Rodney Street, Earl Street, Tarleton Street, Cunliffe Street, Parr Street, Sir Thomas Street, amongst others. Did you know that? You've lived here your whole life. And there's probably, I don't know how many streets that were named on the back of slaves. But that's really what it was, that they found their wealth and their charitable works through their <laughs> slave money. That's sad, friends. That's very sad. And overall, Liverpool was responsible for half the British transatlantic slave trade, and her ships carried perhaps one and a half million enslaved Africans into slavery. And the Albert Docks, if you've been to the Maritime Museum, there's a whole floor dedicated to the International Slave Museum. or slave. It's, it's, it, and unfortunately, there's only a tiny little section, I've been there, on William Wilberforce, who was a great... Uh, spokesperson in Parliament and for 20-something years fought a battle inspired by the Lord to win over the freedom and emancipate slavery, or stop slavery. And this nation started that process of, of stopping the slave trade. But the reality as a slave, you, is not, you are not your own. You always belong to someone else. So why, friends, does Paul use such a strong words with such negative connotations to introduce himself? You see, he lived in an era where slavery was rampant, and it would have been an image his readers clearly understood. But he uses that image of slavery in a very different way. He's saying, I used to belong to someone else, 
but King Jesus has bought me, not with coins and gold, but by laying down his life and shedding his own blood. And the reason why he did this was so that I no longer, no longer live in captivity to my sin, but now I live in the freedom that God intended. And because of that, my whole life belongs to him. And because of, I'm no longer my own, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me, Galatians 2.20. So he's identifying I'm not my own. I'm bought at a price, and I want to honor God with the life he's given me and the freedom he's given me. He understands that he's belonging to Christ, and that should prompt us to ask, who do I belong to? As Paul's implying that you and I are either boned by Christ or by something or someone else. That's a hard pill to swallow. I'm not a slave to anything. I'm not a slave to anyone. You know, I was like, but the, the realization is that we, we never truly are our own. If you've dedicated your whole life towards money and your wealth determines your feelings, your identity, your worth, you've ultimately become a slave. If you find your significance in what people think about you, you'll live your whole life chasing after their affirmation and approval. People-pleasing. And then you're not your own. You belong to other people's perceptions of you. What did they think about me? What did they say about me? Tim Keller, he asks these four questions, and a great preacher, he's gone to glory now. And then he's asking four key questions around four key areas. And he helps us discern our real versus our professed God. Because we can say, I, I'm, uh, this is my expression to my God. But, but these are the questions. What are your daydreams? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? That's the first question. Your money spend. So not only your daydreams, your money spend. What are your priorities around spending? Especially at Christmas. <laughs> You could be spending a lot on your family. You could be spending a lot on a lot of other things. But your money flows effortlessly towards your, heart is, your heart's greatest love. Thirdly, your motivation. What happens when things don't go your way or your prayers aren't answered in the way you'd like them to be? Do we become like Jonah, angry enough to die? Because that betrayed something of Jonah's heart, your motivation. And then your emotions. So it's your daydreams, it's your money spend, your motivation, and then your emotions. Look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Ask the question, do I feel I must have this thing to be fulfilled and significant? Oh, if only I can get the next iPhone. What's, what are you on now, 14? 15, I'm getting left behind. You see what I mean? If only I could have that. I had that model, but I, or the next car model, or the next you know, this uh, trophy or that accomplishment or this thing or that thing. Um, all of these questions help us discern what we're really living for. What is our real rather than our professed God? You see, we weren't designed to belong to anything or anyone except God. And every time we think we've signed a substitute to God, we're left feeling anxious, empty, unfulfilled. And Paul's opening words are a reminder to ask ourselves, who do I belong to? Who is truly my master? Our allegiance should be to Christ. A good self-assessment we may have to ask ourselves is, do my heart, my mind, my actions reflect who I belong to? And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, there's a quote that we're going to look at on the screen. For the moment he sets you free, 
For the moment he sets you free, he is your Lord. We do not decide to take him as Lord. It is he as Lord who buys us out of that market and liberates us and we belong to him. We are never free. We are bond servants, servants of Satan. We are now bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you know, oh, take Jesus as Lord. Uh, it's he who is Lord <laughs> and he redeems you or buys you out of that market, liberates you, and then you belong to him because he's paid the price. And so there's a deep sense of comfort in belonging to him. And so Paul recognizes he's called and set apart and he, be, he writes that he belongs to Christ. It's an incredible thing to belong to a king who is gracious, kind, benevolent, secure and generous. Paul chooses to identify first as a servant of God and not as a great worker for God. In doing so, he stands in the same shoes of all of us before God. He's not some hero doing great work for the king. He's just seeing himself as a servant, a slave of, of righteousness of Christ. And then second question is, who has called you? Notice the second phase, called to be an apostle. An apostle is not a word that we often use today. It means sent one or apostolos is sent one or messenger, a delegate representing someone else. And it's often used historically to represent a king's fleet that would be sent out on special voyages on his behalf. And so possibly an illustration of this today would be like Elon Musk with SpaceX. He's got a very clear idea of what he wants to achieve in space. And so has the team that he's delegated to. And as he sends out fleets of rockets, some of them don't get too far, no, anyway, but that he sends out rockets and astronauts to accomplish this particular mission. But he's never been to space. He's still the one that the company looks to or turns to for its vision, instruction, and inspiration. And so this is the illustration. Paul was once a very different type of sent one to the one he describes here. A couple of years before that, before being sent by Christ to build up the church, he was one who was sent to tear down the church. That was his mission. And his story is found in the book of Acts. And if we looked at that passage, he went to the high priest and re requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And friends, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He recognized the Lord. Who are you, Lord? Paul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And then in verse 15, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. With one encounter, Jesus not only transforms Paul's identity, but calls him to a particular purpose, from Saul to Paul, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to people other than the Jews. And that's the reason he's writing this book of Romans. It's for the same reason. He's been traveling preaching the gospel, but now he wants to go as far as Spain and is asking the Roman church to help him in accomplishing what he's been called to. In Romans 15, verse 23, but now there's no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I first enjoyed your company for a while. 
So one of the reasons he's writing this letter is that he can be assisted by the Christians in Rome. So he may continue with the task of being a chosen instrument to proclaim Jesus, not only to the Jews, his people, but also to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Romans, in one sense, is a mission-funding letter. <laughs> and we have an application of that saying, we're, we're, what you saved into is far more than what you, important than what you saved out of. I may have said that before, but it's, it's so critical. If you saved into, uh, I want to say, uh, a vacuum, if you saved into, uh, you know, no child is born onto, onto is never going to be uh, doing or thrive if it's born into uh, the streets. It's got to be born into a family and, and, and a place of refuge and safety and health and community. And that's what the church is, family, community. And so once we say we don't enter into heaven's waiting room, waiting, well, let's just hang on till we go to glory or the Lord comes. No, God wants to work in and through you to extend his kingdom on the earth. And in that sense, all of us are sent ones, ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians, it says we represent our king who's bought us and called us for a purpose. And then in, in Ephesians, we are what? His workmanship, not our workmanship. We are his workmanship or his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead, for of us, of, ahead of time for us to do. God had thoughts about you from eternity past. He had it, a lot of thoughts. You know, know the thoughts I have for you. Know the plans I have for you to give you hope and a future. Not to harm you, but to prosper you. God's got thoughts about your future, your plan, the purpose that he has for your life. And so you're not saved by good works. You've been saved for the good work he's prepared for you. And that, friends, the way you've been wired, the gifts you've been given, the place where you live, it's all been beautifully orchestrated by God for you to fulfill the purpose of what? Extending his kingdom. And it doesn't happen in isolation. You've heard me say once and many times, we created for community, we fashioned for fellowship, we formed for a family, and none of us work out the call of God in our lives in isolation. And so I was saying to someone this morning, you know, if, if people are going to a particular region, the first thing is like, well, God, if I'm going there, what do you want me to do there? When we arrived in Izmir, God, what are you doing in the city and what do you want us to be part of? That was the first question. Not, well, I'm going to see what money I could make or, you know, where I could go there and go there, make me, you know, I'm good, good sidetracked here because there's a passage in the scripture that warns specifically about this. We're going to say we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But rather, is it not the Lord's will that you should be seeking? And so, just as the, in, the, in the same way, Paul cannot fulfill his plan of getting to Spain without the help of those in the church in Rome. And you can't fulfill the call of God um, and what God is wanting for you without the community of believers around you. So he's not only bought uh, the truth, that he's not only bought you by dying for you on the cross, but he's called you for a particular purpose. And then the third and last question, who do you live for? The third phrase in this verse is probably the most profound. Set apart for what? For the gospel of God. What's that phrase mean? And we're going to come across that word gospel over and over again. The word gospel essentially means good news. And in this verse particular, it means God's good news. Even some Bibles called the Good News Bible, you know, if you look on the front of it. It's astonishing to think that this news is not Paul's good news, but it's God's good news. God is good news for not only his people, but you know, in terms of, of, of Paul reaching, but for the general, for the whole world, for everyone. And it's news about what God has done through Jesus Christ. 
He's come and reconciled us so we can have a relationship with Him. This, friends, is not man's idea. It's God's. And He's the ultimate source and reflects His, his eternal purpose. And so that's what Paul's saying. It's God's good news that He's been set apart for. And what's that word set apart? In one sense, the Holy Spirit sets us apart for various ministry tasks, but there's also a response to being set apart. It changes how, how we live. It means to live the gospel. Preaching's important, but so then is living. Paul's way was to call was to a way of life as well as a task of preaching. It's a quote from Leon Morris. And then there's a book I've come across. Andrew Crawford is also doing a series through Romans and Connection Church in Northwich. And he said there's this guy, Andrew Ollerton, is just this year produced a book called Romans, A Letter That Makes Sense of Life. And he's depicted Romans as a mountain. Speedy, can you? No, the picture there, thanks. Do you mind putting your phone down? Sorry, man. Okay, thanks. This morning's message is like a base camp. Paul's given his starting point. No titles, or no accolades, no endorsements, no bigged up Insta or Facebook or LinkedIn profile. He's, he's, not, he's not trying to start up on that point. He's just saying, as simple as it gets, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the, apostle, uh, for the gospel of God. So you've got this journey, and we're going to explore this in the next weeks. You've got the gospel, then you've got, and that's chapter 1, then Romans 1 to 3, this, uh, this challenge of sin, and then salvation, chapters 3 and 4, then Romans 5 speaks about the peace we found, and then freedom, chapters 6 and 7, and then hope, the high Everest mountain top, the summit, and then uh, you know, people say, you don't visit that, you stay there, you live there. It's the high mountaintop of, of, uh, of um, Romans 8. And then mystery, chapters 9 to 11, around Israel and God's purpose over Israel. And then devotion in chapters 13. And then Romans 13 to 14. Sorry, devotion was chapter 12. Then community, 13 and 14. And then mission, chapters 15 to 16. Nowhere will you find Apostle Paul you know, he's, he's always Paul an apostle. Look through all his epistles, all his letters. There's never once that he's now giving himself a title. Or, uh, you know, often they say, what's your, you know, what, what's your title? And everybody wants to put a title to, to their name. And, and, and Jesus actually even addresses it. He says, don't call anyone father. And, and I think what Jesus was saying is he's, he's establishing honorific titles are reserved for God alone. Don't call God is our Father. And if you to succeed and make sense of life, as I said in my prayer, we are based to abound. We lose our life to find life. In dying to self, you find your true self and true freedom. And so continuing with this mountain illustration, there's a series, uh, uh, sorry, a Netflix documentary called 14 Peaks. And it's following the life of Nimstai Purja. I don't know how you pronounce that, but it's a beautiful picture of them you know, on a mountaintop. You have to be pretty high to get that reflection on your goggles. But he sets out to do the impossible. And I met a guy called Dick Bass back in the day. I'm talking before I was married, probably 1990, in, in Salt Lake City, Utah, a ski resort called Snowbird. There was a Texan, a rich Texan, who was an oil man who built a ski resort, and he owned the ski resort, and he wrote a book called The Seven Summits. And he was the oldest man at that stage to climb Everest at age 53. And I got him to sign his book because he worked in the ski resort, and I was, I mean, he owned the ski resort, and I was working for him. 
But that was, that was another story about the seven highest mountains on the seven continents. But this story was this particular guy set to sum out the 14 highest peaks in the world, all over eight kilometers in, in height. That's the, what they call the death zone. When you get to that height, you start dying. Your, your body's literally shutting down because there's so little oxygen. And that's why so many, I don't know if it's a third or more, people die on Everest. It's some huge number. But in just he, he was going to do that in seven months. The shortest period of time anyone had done it was seven years. And in preparation for this, he had to live completely differently. He dedicated and devoted his life to that goal and that goal alone. He trained differently. He ate differently. He breathed differently. He lived differently. I think most of it was living at altitude to prepare himself. That's why these Sherpas are so good at... Um, at climbing because they've lived at altitude their whole lives and their lung capacities have adapted and they don't often get altitude sickness because they've lived at altitude. But he set this whole life apart for this particular mission. And so here's the application or the explanation. Paul is saying that because of the good news of Jesus Christ, his life is completely set apart. He thinks differently. He lives differently. He feels differently in light of God's good news. He's not only been rescued by Jesus and sent as his ambassador, but now he lives his, with his life set apart for this good news. It doesn't mean that he only goes from place to place to preach the good news, but he's also saying, look at my life. I'm, I'm living this news. In other words, it, it qualifies me. You know how I lived among you. That's what he's saying. In other words, I wasn't just an itinerant preacher who got up on a Sunday and shared a message. I lived among you. You saw my life. You saw my family. He didn't have family. I was going to say my family. He just lived with his heart on his sleeve. He lived with an open heart. He lived with an open life. Not a hidden, you know, well, I'm going to bring a message kind of lifestyle. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and, and make it my slave. So that after all, I have preached to others, I will myself not be disqualified for the prize. And the application is his apart, set-apartness, if I could say that phrase, should move us to ask ourselves, who, friends, do we live for? And what do I live for? It's been, I've been bought by Christ and I've been sent by Christ. Then surely our lives should be one that reflect the good news, God's good news. In the same way that a satellite orbits the earth, so our lives should revolve around this good news. Often we get it backwards. We think that God should revolve around us and we get frustrated when things don't go the way we want them. Paul's reminding us that we're God's image bearers set apart to reflect his good news to the world by how we live out our lives. And friends, in conclusion, the good news of God should make us reflect on not who we are, but whose we are. Who do I belong to? What do I live for? Is what I'm living for worth Christ dying for? If it's not Christ, it will be something or something, else, someone or something else. Paul's identity, purpose, and life revolved around King Jesus. Although this letter to the church in Rome is written by a man called Paul, it's essentially a letter about God and what he's done for us. 
Friends, you and I can meet God in this letter over the course of the next weeks, if not months. Come expectant for God to meet you in these pages. I encourage you to spend some time digging into Romans. I'm not going to be like Martin Lloyd-Jones and others who preached, I think, over years. I think, was it Paul? You were sitting under that ministry. You heard him, okay. Okay. But he has somebody who was a great expositor who preached, I think, years over in a room. We're not going to do that, but we're going to do as much as we can. I've been listening to the Bible Project, and it's in two parts. I encourage you to go and listen to the Bible Project on Romans, Romans, because it gives you a great overview in about seven or nine minutes. You know, some people spend nine years studying this book, <laughs> and in nine minutes you can get a bit of a snapshot. But uh, and since Christ has bought us. And called us, we should set our lives apart for him. That's the big idea this morning. It's not who we are, but whose we are.